This is the National Museum's Liverpool podcast, where we'll thread together stories from our collections with the experiences of people in Liverpool today, exploring connections between the past and the present. Today, we are talking about identity. Who are you and how do you express yourself? We all have our own identity. It can be forged by our past and our present. I'm Ellie Field, and this week we'll explore how people draw strength from their ancestors and discuss the complex identity of Scousers with African and Afro-Caribbean heritage. Then we'll delve into the world of tattooing as we learn about the original sailor tattoos and why marking our skin can help boost confidence and shape our identities. Now, over to Mimi, who is speaking to Mara Livermore about how she connects with her African ancestors. The exploration of identity has never been more important. Nearly two years on from the death of George Floyd, changing attitudes towards and the understanding of black identity has become vital. Now, more than ever, what our ancestors did and how they survived is crucial. Hi, I'm Mimi, I'm a podcaster, and I recently produced a short film which documents the lived experience of black scousers and their identities. I sat down to speak with Mara Livermore. Mara is from the House of Sweetwaters, where she specialises in coaching, consulting and healing work to help people start profitable, conscious and satisfying businesses. Mara is also a postgraduate researcher at the University of Liverpool, where she studies African traditional religions and practices them personally as well. Having such a strong connection with our ancestors, I asked Mara how this affects her identity today. To set the scene, I really had an awakening and I became more interested in who my ancestors were, what they were doing prior to slavery and colonialism, actually kind of tied to just after Brexit, because I had previously and like still to a certain extent, consider myself Black British. And I think Brexit was a moment where I was like, oh, actually, that's actually a contentious issue for some people. So if it's not that, what is it? And as I started my research, the books started getting more and more expensive, a little bit more difficult to find, and things were in journals that I didn't at the time have access to. So I was like, oh, looks like I'd always thought I'd probably go back to uni for something. I thought it would be like maybe law or business, but this is a lot more fun. I think people should be connecting with their ancestors and Black people in particular because it adds more layers to the story. And if you aren't being taught a full and rounded story in school, and if you don't have access to a full and rounded story via Uh, family or community, then working with your ancestors is and getting to know them is a way to get that kind of context. I often speak to people who are like, but I don't have good relationships with my immediate family or I was adopted or all sorts of different things that mean that they might feel disconnected. Like I'm a child of the diaspora, studying African traditional religions when I'm not really African, right? I'm from Birmingham. And so there's all these different ways in which we feel disconnected. And But ancestors are not just your recent surviving, your recent dead, like your recent elevated dead. You also have like ancestral connections to energies and stuff. So you can focus on an ancestral connection to water. And these these are things that live in your body. So you don't necessarily need someone to tell you it's not... um, 
prescriptive in terms of here's some people who might have had problematic beliefs who you now have to be friends with. It was really interesting that Mara could identify as both Black British, being from Birmingham, whilst also valuing her African heritage at the same time. Navigating dual identities can be a daunting task, and it felt like Mara was trying to look back and forward at the same time. So I asked her how she forms relationships between the past and the future. So I draw on the fact that, for for example, I've done a DNA test, but even before then I had a consultation and people have told me about some of the lineages that that are within me and the people and ancestors and the cultures that I can connect to. And so even so, even though it just came out of my mouth, like it is kind of the work to break down that conditioning because you are because you are so connected and often way more connected than you think. And so I think that we have a problem here because so much of what is designed defined as culture is meant to be when it can be respected, it's from a book or from inside a big old building or something like that but I mean our culture is so much more is so much more expansive than that and I think we a lot of different people have a much more expansive of expansive understanding of culture that they can tap into and it might be the way that you braid your hair or the way that someone in the way that people in your family know how to pray. It might be the way that you design houses or can set up a space. It might be things as more spiritual as like laying hands or things like that, that it gifts that people have, but it might also be like a knack for something being really good at something, being able to bring the fun wherever you are, like a certain predilection towards a specific kind of whiskey. Like these are all our body telling us this is for you, like follow, follow these strands, follow these stories. And those are connective. And so I'm uh, from, I was born in Birmingham. My mum is Jamaican. My father is American from Alabama, who's a recent addition. Part of the years, part of the ancestral work has also been connecting to that side of the family. And I was out for dinner with my um, paternal grandma and ordering all the fried foods because it was, <laughs> it's the South. I was like, give it to me. <laughs> um, and so my grandma was looking at my plate like, oh, do you have a, what's your favorite vegetable? And I said Brussels sprouts and her face dropped, not because Brussels sprouts are a controversial vegetable, but she's like, that's my favorite vegetable. And like, that's the second time I've ever met her. But in terms of family, in terms of things that we like, it's with, I think we're told a lot of it is just habit or a peculiar thing that you do, but that's, that's the information. That's what you need to know. I really identified with Mara having a parent from America. My dad is also from the US, so we both understood the nuances of having a singular American parent whilst trying to navigate your identity in the UK. As a black British person, it can be hard to maintain cultural strength. So I asked Mara to tell me more about how she juggles multiple identities and ancestors whilst drawing on multiple heritages. There is that massive shift of spending time in the States the culture is really different for certain things. And I definitely found myself feeling like I was caught a little bit blindsided by things because Americans just be doing things differently. And that is okay. It's, 
interesting being here and doing ancestral reverence work and being focused on African traditional religions and how they've survived across the diaspora through to today and how that informs like culture and black culture specifically. But doing that kind of work, you can't do it without acknowledging the land that you stand on and the spirits here. So I find I'm I'm alongside that learning more about um, English pagan traditions and other cultures and other indigenous things because I'm mixing in those kinds of circles and learning a lot. And it can be quite confusing. There are days when I'm like, I'm trying to point this way. And that might be also across the, there is a huge diversity in African traditional religions. There's lots of different ones. And even within ones, different families, different lineages will do things differently. So constantly kind of trying to navigate that can be a bit tiring. And the best advice I got, because I am interested particularly in Aoife and Haitian Vodun and Hoodoo, and the best advice I got from all kinds of practitioners was like, keep them separate in terms of traditions and ancestral reverence is a great place for anyone to start then because it means that you don't have to like pigeonhole an activity first in order to understand it you get to open up the conversation see what comes out and follow that and let them be led more naturally this got me thinking and all this discussion sparked a question within myself and I wondered how I or anybody could go about connecting with their ancestors themselves So for someone or a black person specifically looking to reconnect to their ancestors and start creating a space for them, it is first of all about, it's about accepting where you are and enjoying that. And so coming to it from a space of not, oh, I need to be better or I need to be this or this person is going to want to see X, Y, and Z, like, but arriving into that space and connecting with your ancestors it might and usually looks completely different. And so creating a space for them is really good. It could be a bookshelf. It could be tucked away in a box. It could be a window ledge, but somewhere private where you can spend time with them, basically. And if you haven't got a space, it's always important to remember that, like, you are your first altar. You know, that body, your body is a temple thing that I was like, ugh, get that away from me. But actually, like, you're your first altar. Like, you're a living embodiment, a living portal for bringing whatever like bringing energies to you and connecting with your ancestors. So I encourage people to kind of open their mouth and speak. And if you don't know what to say, just kind of introducing yourself. Hi, I'm Mara. This is what I've got going on at the moment. This is how my day has been. This is how I feel about it. It's I'm saying this to my ancestors and addressing to start with as well. It is helpful to maybe address your elevated and honorable ancestors. You can name your mother and father and say, I'd like to connect more with the ancestors who are here to support us in getting great at life and having all the blessings that we deserve and having a good time because a lot of African traditional religions have the concept that you like chose to come here knowing like you don't even meet on earth you don't even meet all your family in one go so you have to take your time and practice and wait and be patient patience to I watch Practical Magic and I am still waiting to be able to blow a candle and have it light, you know? I'm still waiting for my, for the, I've had a lot of actually quite supernatural experiences now, 
but I still can't click my fingers and summon lightning or fire. And so I think that there, especially with some of the more Instagrammy social media advice, where someone has 60 seconds to start to introduce you to a really complex topic. So just being patient with yourself, knowing it takes time. Yeah, I do think about the future a lot, but one of the things that I talk to people a lot about is it's not, it's, if you're measuring your progress in those terms, it becomes quite overwhelming. I think, especially in these confusing and wild times, it can be difficult to think about the future with optimism, but it's gonna be a while before there's no water, before there's no sky, before there's no earth, at least. So what we can do, and our atoms and cells will be around still too. So what we can do is just do our best and that will be all right. That was Mimi speaking to Mara Livermore about how Mara's strong connection to her ancestors affects her identity today. Mara briefly spoke about ways and spaces to connect to your ancestors. And at the International Slavery Museum, we have an ancestral shrine available for those who need a dedicated space. Ancestral shrines are places that are set up to remember people from your ancestry. They can have memorabilia that reminds you of people from the past as a way to honour them and remember your connection to them. Many different people and cultures around the world use them for remembrance, but also for religious or spiritual reasons. The shrine we have at the International Slavery Museum is built both for African diaspora people who have that generational link with slavery to honour their enslaved ancestors, but also to continental African people as well. Lois South, education demonstrator at the International Slavery Museum, wrote a beautiful piece about how she feels when she stands at the shrine. Sometimes I come to the shrine for the ancestors and I sit and think, as a young black woman, I struggle every day with the history and the legacies of slavery. Sometimes it cuts deeper than others and some days it's absolutely unbearable. Everywhere and I turn in the sea, I'm just haunted, roads paved with blood, buildings resting on the back of the enslaved. There's a wound in my soul and it's 400 years deep and I'm not sure how to heal it. I tell the ancestors to rest in internal power, but most days I feel so powerless. Honestly, sometimes I feel numb to the feeling of grieving. 15 million trafficked, and I wish I knew more about them, more than just statistics. Black faces are more than just slaves, victims, criminals. So much Eurasia, slave masters sitting high on plinths while my ancestors' life had gotten. I want to know them, their goals, their fears, what they loved, all the beautiful intricacies that made them them, <laughs> but I don't. I want to tell them about all the progress we've made and all the progress that we haven't. I want to, <laughs> to let them know that I wouldn't be standing here today without, you know, their sacrifices, but I can't. Sister Maya said, I am the dream and the hope of the slave, but am I? Sometimes I sit at the shrine and I question, am I living the life that Queen Annie or Sam Sharp or Tucson Louverture fought for? I don't know. I hope so. But I don't even know. 400 years of grief and pain and resistance. 400 years of crying out that our lives matter. That this black body that I inhabit matters. 
But somehow I still find the strength to persist and resist every single day. And I guess that's why they call it black girl magic. And I guess that's just the ancestors by my side. To all my ancestors, to those that fought so I could be free, and to those that drowned so I could breathe, I promise that by any means necessary, I will not let you be forgotten. Thank you, Lois, for writing and reading that moving tribute to your ancestors. Now I'll pass you over to Mervyn Lynch, local Liverpool DJ, and Ashley Nugent, author, performer, and director at Rise Up CIC, who spoke about their identities as black scousers and their feelings about the displaying of objects from Benin in the World Museum. The Benin Collection at World Museum is an exhibit of sculptures and other artefacts which date back to the 14th century. Most of the pieces, which were part of the Edo Kingdom's priceless royal inheritance, were stolen by a British military force in 1897 and sold to museums in North America and Europe with the largest of the collections held by the British Museum. And this has raised some questions about the impact this has had on black people in places like Liverpool and how we should be thinking about how we engage with displays and exhibits such as these. And with me in the studio, we have Ashley Nugent. He's a writer, performer and creative director of Rise Up CIC. And Ashley was recently involved in a workshop with the Liverpool Museum that looked at this in some detail. I spoke with Ashley about his visits to museums and exhibits as a child and what his view was on Africa then compared to now. My view on Africa when I was younger is no different to everybody else in this country's view on Africa, particularly with myself as I am the terms we use nowadays, I guess, would be mixed race or you know, multiple heritage, whatever we say nowadays. <laughs> it wasn't as polite in the 1980s when I was growing up. But yeah, my view would be the same as anybody else's. I was brought up in a predominantly white area. All of my friends from school were white. All of my teachers were white. My dad's teachers in Jamaica were white and they taught the British history the way that the British school teachers taught British uh, colonial history. No different. My dad was taught that Africans lived in trees. This was in Jamaica by Kingston. <laughs> so my view was the same as everybody else's and we, we didn't really consider it at the time, but we kind of thought that Africa didn't really have much of a history. We now, of course, know this to be a total lie, a total whitewash of African history. As late as the 19, late 1960s, historians were writing there is no history in Africa until European colonization. That's when history starts. Until then, there was nothing. And all of this is complete nonsense. We now know all of that stuff was happening thousands of years before the arrival of the Portuguese and then all the other Europeans. And we also know that there was highly advanced civilization on the African continent way before anything, anything comparable was happening in Western Europe even. We spoke about how Ashley was given the opportunity to get close to the artifacts and actually hold these pieces of history in his hands. And we asked him how this made them feel. You know, getting up close to these artifacts from the Benin exhibition and actually putting on the rubber gloves and holding them in our hands as I was there in these workshops with 
Leo, who is an artist from Benin, as well as a number of other local uh, contributors, such as Otis Graham and, and Nazra Elliott and Saffron and Emmy. It was really... It was really emotional for us. It was, I would go as far as to say, kind of spiritual or mystical or at least, at the very least, depending on what your belief system is, at the very least, it was a connection to our genetic history that all of us have been missing. We were, we had tears in our eyes at points and it felt like some kind of reunion, like we had been brought back together somehow. And Leo, the artist from Benin, he was absolutely taken aback by our reaction and eventually... After witnessing this a couple of times, he asked us, why does this mean so much to you? Because you, you are from England, and obviously some of us as well are, are mixed race, light-skinned, and maybe Africans and Jamaicans wouldn't even see us as being like them. I know this from my own experience in Jamaica, where I was called white boy in Jamaican prison. <laughs> so he was, why does this mean so much to you? And we had to explain, this is, our history has been ripped from us We've been told nothing about who we are and where we come from. And indeed, everything about our genetic history, our African genetic history, has been a lie. And it's taken us a long time to get to where we are now. And a lot of things have changed in the past few years. The bigger George Floyd and the BLM movement and everything has, has, has changed things a lot. And there are now a lot of doors opening. And for me, it's been the first time in my whole life I wasn't brought up around black people. This has been the first time in my whole life the past couple of years that I've sat around with other black and mixed race people specifically to discuss our experiences of race and racism and colonialism. And it's been a massive shift for me. And this Benin exhibition is a huge part of it. The, the recurring theme in the conversations, we as local, you know, participants and say from all parts of the diaspora, um, the, the recurring theme, the recurring conversation that we had was just that this is, it's mind-blowing for us to be given the opportunity not only to get close to these artifacts, but to actually be the people who are being asked how this should be, how the exhibition should be reworked. So us now having that power at last, being given some of the power to decide as black people from the city what is said about black people in the city and in the world. That was the recurring theme of our conversations. And we are all just incredibly grateful. We're not bitter. We're not angry. Not all the time anyway. <laughs> uh, but we are very, very, very grateful. I mean, what is clear uh, from what you guys discussed during the workshop and, you know, what's from historians worldwide is that these artifacts in the Benin exhibit were stolen. They weren't acquired, they weren't purchased, and they certainly weren't transferred to a place of safety for the benefit of, you know, the artifacts themselves. They were looted, you know, they were by force sold on and displayed across Europe and North America. Is that fact as important, do you think, as the origin of the artifacts themselves? If you now go and look at um, what the exhibition will look like when it reopens and indeed go and visit it live, you will see that it mentions in big letters that this, these artifacts are loot. These were stolen by military forces. They burnt down the palace and they looted it. And this has happened all over the world. 
let's just bear in mind very, very briefly that Britain was the biggest empire in the world ever, ever. And it had, let's just say, six other really, really successful empires doing the same stuff with it, all from the same part of the world. As in Italy, France, Holland, Portugal, Spain, Germany, and even a little bit of Denmark and a little bit of a couple of us getting involved. So this is one part of the world with one way of doing things and one religion and one kind of way of doing society and organizing things, all developing at the same time altogether. This is unprecedented in world history. And they were going around stealing stuff from all over the world. We took over most of the globe between us, including nearly the whole of the African continent, apart from what Liberia and Ethiopia we had, after 1913, we had colonised the whole of the African continent, bar two countries. Yeah? So, British museums, in particular, Britain eventually became the best at this. The best at colonising, the best at sailing, the best at military warfare, the best at taking over places, and the biggest empire. And our museums are full of artefacts that were stolen. And lots of people now, and this was the recurring theme with regards to the looting of these artefacts, is give it back. It's time that we evolved as a society. It's time that we moved on. We love to look at these things, but there are other ways we can do this. We can share. We can work with other countries and move things around the world and have different, like, just as we did with the terracotta warriors coming over from China. We can do things like that. We can also, uh, we, we, we can we can use 3D printing to, 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 re to remake things. We can show pictures of things. We can show videos. We can still learn, but it's about time we gave this stuff back. On a personal note, I asked Ashley if the experience has changed how he felt about his identity. This was his response. How I feel about my own identity and how that has been impacted by what's happened the past few years with Black Lives Matter and people waking up more to the kind of stuff that people like me have been... <laughs> talking about for 20 odd years and studying for 20 odd years and being looked at like we're crazy or like I've got a chip on my shoulder or something um, and then getting involved with these kind of things as I say the door being open to people like me to get involved with changing the exhibition in the museum regarding a certain part of Africa um, how that affects my identity again my identity is is a developing thing um, it's a moving feast was it Stuart Hall that said identity is a movable feast um it's changing all the time, especially as a person who has a Scottish mother and a Jamaican father and having to accept both sides of, of, of my heritage. This is a very very convoluted, very complex, uh, even just to be a, a scouser, to be in Liverpool, it's, it's, it's a very convoluted um, history. So our, our identity should be changing all the time. We should be learning all the time and developing all the time and it never stops. And yes, what has happened over the past couple of years has had a massive impact on me. I think just to propel me forward, to give me the confidence to express myself truly and to be able to express myself in, and to think that I am actually being listened to for once and people aren't just scared or confused by what I have to say. So what identity means is what you identify with. Okay, what in the external world do you identify with and therefore how do you see yourself and other people see you? It's shifting. <laughs> it's shifting all the time. And um, I believe all of us just need to make the effort to, you know, be open-minded 
and keep our eyes open and listen, listen to each other. I feel like the world, the Western world has only just started listening to black people <laughs> um, and to be listened to for the first time <laughs> certainly changes the way you identify with those who are listening. Thank you, Mervyn and Ashley, for that incredible conversation. It's been a privilege for us at the museum to hear from local people as they share their responses and personal connections to the Benin artefacts, helping us to shape the displays. Next, we are going to delve into the world of tattooing. And where better to begin than the beginning? Alex Wine, local tattoo artist, spoke to the Maritime Museum's Ian Murphy about the history of sailor tattoos. In 2021, deep in lockdown, maritime fever swept the nation. The Wellerman Sea Shanty hit TikTok and kept us all amused with its nautical themes. Coming from Liverpool, this hit a little different. Liverpool's a port city, that's no surprise. It's woven into our history. It's in our bones. The life on board gallery in the Maritime Museum shows a little slice of Liverpool's seafaring past and there's a prism to see through where we are today. Hi, I'm Alex and I'm a local tattoo artist from Liverpool. I tattoo mainly in traditional sailor-style tattoos. That's where I feel stylistically at home. I sat down with Ian Murphy, head of the Maritime Museum, to discuss maritime tattoos and what importance tattoos had in sailors' identities. Tattoos have become, there's something that's become associated with sailors through history. Um, obviously, you've got tattoos in the much wider culture now, and in, in the past, you also had a kind of a wider sort of symbolic significance in a lot of cultures. Um, a lot of the, the kind of history is kind of a bit on the vague side. You've got to remember tattooing's very kind of attached to people and people don't tend to survive in time. So what you've got left is, you know, a few bits of kind of information and sort of uh, images and illustration, but it can be a bit kind of, um, it can be a bit sort of vague, particularly in the early years. It's often said that kind of, uh, Captain Cook's voyages to the sort of South Seas uh, in the 1700s are where sailors kind of first encounter tattooing in, 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 you know, in, in some of the South Sea uh, Polynesian cultures. I, I'm never quite sure about that. You've certainly got evidence of tattooing in all cultures. Ian is so right. It's sometimes hard to track the history of tattoos as human skin is not often the part of the body that is most easily preserved. We have to look at unusual instances of preservation like bodies found in ice or in sand, also evidence from cave paintings. But we can guess that there has been tattooing in human society since 4000 BC. Ian pointed that the first instance of British sailors coming into contact with tattooed people was the voyages of Captain Cook to the Polynesian islands. The Polynesian tattoos are particularly interesting as they are heavily symbolic. They were not merely just pretty patterns or collections of triangles. They were complicated ritualistic symbols of heritage. Sailors saw this, absorbed it, and recreated it in their own style. I mean, they, they take this kind of very symbolic, ritualised tattooing from other cultures, and they, you know, they adapt it, they kind of uh, appropriate it, and add, as you say, sort of um, Western European and particularly seafaring sort of elements to it. In a lot of ways, I kind of wonder about why they're doing it. So, you know, this, the tattoos sort of signify a lot of things, 
but I, th I think you can kind of break it down into, um, you know, th they're kind of memorialising what they're doing. So a lot of the time it, the, the tattoos mark sort of an event in their lives, their working lives, or, you know, the loss of a, a, a colleague or whatever, or, or uh, a voyage, a particular voyage or a particular bit of um, an achievement almost. So there's a way of kind of marking that. There's also the sort of thing around um, acting like talismans. And I think sailor culture, one of the things that comes out in, in a lot of the kind of gallery that we, we've got at the museum, but in kind of a lot of the wider region, there's incredible amounts of sort of superstition and, um, uh, you know, habits and culture that grows up in, in, in sailor communities. And I think, you know, tattoos definitely feature as a part of that. We see loads of different symbols coming up again and again that indicate these various moments. If someone had a hula girl, this reflects being stationed or going to Hawaii. If they had a dragon, that meant they served in Asia. A shell-backed turtle represented crossing the equator and the rope around the wrist indicated someone being a deckhand. There are a number of superstitious symbols as well. For example, a shark was supposed to serve as protection against being eaten if washed overboard. A chicken on the right foot and a pig on the left protected the sailors from drowning in a shipwreck. One of my favourites is the nautical star or compass. Sailors had the belief that wearing this symbol would always guide them home. I think sailors and crews were, were, were very, you know, there's a lot of superstitions around going to sea. And, um, you, th you know, I always think that sailors are really experienced and they're good at their jobs. And on sailing ships, you know, they know these really complicated systems and how to make them work. But at the same time, outside of the ship, they're going out into like an environment that's just completely dangerous. People aren't designed to live in the middle of, you know, the oceans or whatever. So they'd be very aware of how precarious, you know, what they were doing was. If it, one freak wave or a bad storm or whatever could completely, yeah. And I think, so around all of this, you get these ways of just trying to control this thing that you can, all these things that you can't control. One of the interesting things for me with some of the stuff, when we've looked at how sailors um, cope with life at sea, you know, the there's other sort of sailor art around. So they, you, they, they paint, you know, they painted the locker on board the ship. They do things called scrimshaw where they're decorating with inks, um, sort of bone and tusk and whatever. And you see a lot of the same sort of symbols there. But... It always interests me. We've started to look at some of that stuff when they're doing the things themselves as being ways of um, almost like mental well-being, you know, of ways of giving yourself something to do. But I was, I was thinking as well, what, they, what the sailors are doing, they're getting tattoos of things they know from what they see. And I think the meaning comes along a bit later, so, you know. There's a tension between the lives sailors lived at sea and the lives they lived when they got back to port. At sea, they had to be a tight-knit crew, a team. Tattoos could be a way to show their commitment to their lifestyle. However, when they arrived back on shore, these tattoos could mark them as outsiders or the riffraff, as it were. I mean, like, 1700s and early 1800s, and Britain's, you know, it's, it's, um, it's supposedly a very kind of cultured and civilised place. I mean, it's real elements of you know deprivation and inequality and and dangerous 
you know, life, life just with disease and everything else is dangerous. But you've got this veneer of being a very civilized society. So you see people who are kind of covered in these superstitious symbols. That again sets them aside as something a bit, you know. So the museum's got a gallery called Life on Board, and the whole sort of um, the idea behind it was to really look at sailor culture and to look at this odd life that sailors had you know they traveled in this kind of bubble almost around the world and they developed their own kind of you know they did the work and the ways of doing the work that they did but they also developed their own sort of um the ways of living and the ways of sort of interacting with each other and the ways of getting away from each other to give themselves headspace and you realize when you look at what they're doing they're building this culture which is very different from the culture of somebody who would be living back in Liverpool or would be, you know, living in a, a, a mill town in the middle of, of Britain. So they they became very kind of independent, but also a group. The other point is when they get into port, you know, they're meeting other sailors. You've got, you've got a thing that grew up called Sailor Town, which was this, those bits along the waterfronts in all of these ports that become real kind of... Um, you know, cosmopolitan melting pots where people from all around the world, but as you were saying, particularly kind of from, from working class backgrounds, would be meeting each other again face to face in what were, you know, they had a reputation of being really kind of quite dangerous, rough places, but I suspect some of that might be people. And also, you know, you've got a, you've got a site that's very working class, manual work on ships. There's a bit of, you know, a fear of, of what that mean if, means if you're from somewhere that's not like that. It must appear incredibly sort of uh, shocking. Tattoos then, back in Britain, could be a marker of what was perceived to be the undesirable, the outsiders and the working class. In recent years, the needle seems to have shifted and it's become more acceptable to be tattooed. People have found new ways to express their personality, their heritage and their lived experience through their tattoos. Most of the time, if you ask a tattoo person, there'll be a story behind every piece. From sailors covering themselves in good luck charms, to people like me getting mementos from important times in my life. In my opinion, the role of tattoos hasn't changed. We're marking what's important. We're making an archive on our own living bodies. The beauty of tattoos is that everyone has their own way of interpreting them. Some tattoos have a deep and thoughtful meaning. Some are connected to people we love and help keep them close. Others are silly little jokes and moments that we immortalise. The point is they can mean anything to anyone. I spoke to Felix Mufti Wright about how his tattoos have helped him gain confidence and documented his work as a poet. I knew I wanted tattoos since I was probably about 14. I got my first one for my 18th birthday, paid for by my brother, despite my mum's frustrated protests. I'm now 29, and the taboo against tattoos has certainly mellowed out. And my mum's protests have almost disappeared. Almost. I spoke to Felix Mufti Wright, actor, performer and writer from Liverpool. Felix has 38 tattoos and counting, which is far more than my measly seven. He tells me about the first tattoo he got when he was 18. The first tattoo that I got is a little rose in a box. And it's because when I was 16, I started writing a play called How to Kill a Rose, which is about toxic relationships, um, especially 
from a trans perspective because trans people are at a much higher rate of being in abusive relationships. So How to Kill a Rose is all about one person buying a rose for another person and slowly throughout the play you see how it deteriorates. So I kind of got a little rose in a box to show how you can preserve it and keep it forever, I guess. If you don't already know, tattoos are pretty painful. Part of the allure for many people is that you have to go through something, a painful period of time that results in a permanent artwork on your body that can give you a euphoric boost of confidence. Felix tells me how he feels after getting a tattoo. Yeah, so usually after a tattoo, I just feel, I feel good. Like, um, and it, it depends where it is. Like, if it's just like on my ankle or something, usually I'll just like forget it and I'll be like, oh, I have to moisturize that. But like, I got like freckles tattooed on my face. And, um, and after I got that, obviously that's like changed every time you look in the mirror. You know, um, mum, that's a joke. Um, if, you listen, <laughs> if you listen to this, they're, they're semi-permanent. And um, it's a complete joke. But um, like, yeah, so after I got that one, that was kind of like a big drastic. And my hands as well, you know, you see your hands all the time. But they made me like feel so much better about my hands. Like I've always been insecure about my hands and like them being small or whatever. But after I got that, like it completely like change the way I perceive myself like a huge part of myself and like the the best tattoo that I got for me though probably was when I was able to get like one on my chest after I had top surgery because like that was some that was like a big space that obviously for a long time I haven't been able to go well for my whole life I haven't been able to go near after I was like when I was first able to like take my top off in the tattoo parlor that was like the best feeling ever (laughs) I like can't really imagine who I'd be like without my tattoos like they definitely do give me a confidence like because if like there's a part of my skin that's shown or whatever like I'll never have to be like oh how does my arm look because I'll just be like oh they'll just look at my tattoos (laughs) you know what I mean like oh how do I look oh and like I'm like used to be really bad at like eye contact and stuff like that like really bad like like really noticeably bad like people would say it a lot um and I'd kind of just a big thing in my head was like, what are people looking at? What are you looking at? You know what I mean? Like, what are you looking at? What are you looking at? But now I can kind of just be like, they're looking at my tattoos. It's fine. They're looking at my tattoos. So I don't know if it's like a confidence thing in the way that it's kind of comfort to myself or whether it's actually how I believe I'm perceived by other people because of my tattoos now, but it definitely gives me a comfort that I notice a lot. Much like Felix, my tattoos bring me great comfort and confidence. I have two Studio Ghibli tattoos that depict four awesome women from Princess Mononoke and Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind. Not to be cringe, but they genuinely do help me feel like I can overcome something when I'm having a tough time. All my tattoos give me some form of confidence, whether it's my dragonfly that I got with my best friend that reminds me I'm not alone, or the cat on my arm that is for my deceased pet duck, who honestly just reminds me I like cats more than people most of the time. Felix explains to me the story behind his incredible back tattoo. I got my back piece done by Mr. Preston Tattoo, and um, who's like a big tattoo artist for anyone who doesn't know. And um, I sent him my poetry collection, and he like curated um, my back piece based on that. Um, so that was really cool, and like sent him different ideas for visuals and stuff. So that was really cool because it was like an artist that I've been trying to book him with for ages. 
um like a really collaborative kind of piece and he like really enjoyed doing it he said as well um and it just looks so cool like i'm just made up with it and it's like my whole back obviously so it's such a big space like it's your biggest like you know space altogether. so it was a lot to commit to especially in one day and um yeah it was many hours and many diazepams um but we got there in the end and i couldn't be happy with it honestly like after i got that done like every time i just catch myself in the mirror you know what i mean i'm like yeah that looks sick <laughs> it's well known that once you get one tattoo it can be pretty hard to stop there as someone who has a dedicated list on my notes app for tattoo ideas i'm always eager to hear other people's felix tells me about the long list of tattoos he's planning on getting in the future some of which, as this episode is released, I'm sure he's already had done. So I'm, I'm getting my chest done. So I've got like 2001, because that was the year I was born, like on my stomach. And then I'm getting like the creation of Adam hands kind of meeting at my top surgery scars and then little circles on my collarbones of like the faces from creation of Adam. Um, I'm also getting a care bear with its head ripped off <laughs> on my arm. <laughs> and then I'm getting... Um, not well <laughs> like the words not well tattooed on my wrist and also like i have like um like all my arms like are getting covered now but um i have like a big huge surgery scar on my arm and like some other scars as well and obviously notoriously scars are really hard to tattoo over and especially if like um they surgery scars because obviously they go all the way down um so i like just wrote a little poem and it's like um scars are just skin growing back stronger and i'm gonna like get the words separately um printed out and kind of like put it along the scars on my arm to kind of fit around it so yeah a bit of a contrast between the care bear getting his head ripped off um but yeah um so yeah that that sums up basically really what my tattoo experience is bit of chaos a lot of meaning bit more chaos bit more meaning <laughs> As Felix said, his tattoos are a sort of pick-a-mix of jokes, aesthetics, poetry and art. As a writer, he uses his body as a piece of paper, filling it in with his own words and ideas. Felix tells me more about using his own poetry for tattoos. The thing is, with my tattoos, I'm covered in my poems. Like, I have Lim Van Gogh's Starry Night on my ankle, and it says... You find a place among the scars. I wonder what I'm doing in this place among the stars. So that was from a poem I wrote. And then I also have, I have a moon on me shin and it says the thundercloud has lifted and I can finally see what's real, which is um, a quote from How to Kill a Rose, which was my play I started writing when I was 16 that was on at the Unity Theatre last year. And I also have on my back, you taste the whiskey bifters and things you've never told anyone except me. And then Necromantic Big, which is the name of my poetry collection. And that line is a quote from my poetry collection. So I'm covered in my words. You know, I'm covered in things that really do mean a lot to me. It is definitely like a representation of like my artistic expression. And I have a lot of ideas where I'm like, oh, this would look really cool with this. Um, so, yeah, like I really do use myself as a canvas. I think I've just always loved art. I've always loved, you know, 
messing things up like I can't look at an empty piece of paper for too long <laughs> and, and that's what I see when I see like a big bit of space on my arm I guess but I just love tattoos like I love the culture I love looking at other people's I love it when people are like interested in mine I love it when I have tattoos that mean a lot to other people um, and finding out different meanings to different people about art that's like on my skin um, so yeah I feel really blessed about um the kind of resources I had when I was like looking for tattoos of what inspired me because yeah I got a lot from it and so did my skin. <laughs> I had a lot of fun talking to Felix about his tattoos, which very much tell the story of his identity. And that brings us to the end of this episode. I think this episode has shown that the idea of identity is complex. It can involve the changing of your appearance to represent who you want people to see, or it can involve the internal feelings of connection with your ancestors, your city, your family, which in Liverpool can be complicated especially for those who grew up in a city that was involved in the enslavement of their ancestors. If you've enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more stories like this, you can support National Museums Liverpool by making a donation or becoming a member at liverpoolmuseums.org.uk slash join and support. Thanks for listening to the National Museums Liverpool podcast. And don't forget to check out the other episodes in this series.